International Public Lecture Series at the University of Sydney. I'm Meredith Hall, Program Manager for Sydney Ideas. I'm very pleased to present a lecture tonight by Paul Gilding. Tonight's lecture is a co-presentation with the University of Sydney's Institute of Sustainable Solutions and is part of their Focus on the Future 2009 lecture series. Sydney Ideas is very pleased to be working with the Institute on what we hope is the first in a series of co-presentations. Paul's lecture tonight will run for 45 minutes and will be followed by a 20-minute question and answer session. We have two microphones set up at the bottom of the aisles here, so please come down and queue at the microphones with your questions after the lecture. The lecture tonight is being recorded for the University of Sydney website, so please make sure your questions are clear and concise. The next lecture in the Sydney Ideas program continues to look at the multitude of issues around sustainability. Bill McKibben is a US journalist, environmental campaigner and best-selling author. His essays in journalism are not so well known in Australia, but he has some very prov provocative ideas about the current environmental situation in the US and is very involved in grassroots activism there. This lecture will be next week on Wednesday the 6th of May and for the first time, we will use the university city venue, the Conservatorium of Music. So I do hope you can join us at this new venue for Sydney Ideas. But for tonight, I'm very pleased to now welcome Associate Professor Rosemary Lister, Interim Co-Director of the Institute for Sustainable Solutions and Director of the Australian Centre for Climate and Environmental Law here at the University of Sydney. Rosemary will introduce Paul Gilding and his work to you. Thank you, Rosemary. Thanks, Meredith. Deputy Vice-Chancellor Jill Truella, the Honourable Justice Nicola Payne, distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen, it gives me great pleasure as the Interim Co-Director of the Institute to welcome you all here tonight to hear Paul Gilding's lecture in our Focus on the Future series. I'd like to thank Meredith from the Sydney Ideas very much for co-hosting the seminar with us. And of course, thanks also go to John Laverack, the Institute's Executive Manager and his communications team. For those of you who don't know much about the Institute, it was launched on the 15th of July last year by Jeffrey Sachs of the Earth Institute at Columbia University. The goals of the Institute are to foster interdisciplinary sustainability research across the university, to establish sustainability teaching programs and units of study at the postgraduate and undergraduate levels, to host conferences and seminars, to engage the community, particularly through uh, forums such as the Focus on the Future Lecture Series, and to integrate the university's campus sustainability program with the work of the Institute. We look forward very much to your continuing interest in and engagement with the Institute. And now that we have you on our database, you won't be free of us. Um, we'll certainly be keeping you informed of future lectures in the series uh, that will be presented by a very distinguished panel of domestic and international speakers, including Nobel Prize winners. The topic of tonight's lecture is economic growth. Version 1.0 is finished. The great disruption has begun, presented by Paul Gilding. Of course, it's very topical that we hear Paul tonight as we continue to experience and try to anticipate the effects of the global financial crisis. And I look forward very much to hearing what Paul, a highly regarded futurist, has to say to us this evening. 
In preparing to introduce Paul, I reflected on some of the warnings that have been given to us in recent times about unbridled economic growth and states of collapse. I thought immediately of two books, The Club of Rome's Limits to Growth and their 30-year update, and Jared Diamond's Collapse, How Societies Choose to Fail or to Survive. Now, of course, what we were being warned about in these books was a state of ecological collapse as a result of economic growth and the overconsumption of the Earth's resources. I doubted that many people expected that we would witness such a dramatic confluence of economic collapse and clear warnings of ecological collapse. So I went back to Jared Diamond's book to look at the factors which he identified as signaling ecological collapse of societies and found them to be highly pertinent to the collapse of the global economy. He mentions the following factors. The first is that societies may do disastrous things because they failed to anticipate a problem before it arrives. Secondly, societies may fail to perceive the problem even after it has arrived. Thirdly, societies often fail to solve a problem once it has been perceived. And finally, the problem may, beyond, may be beyond our present capabilities to solve because it's too expensive or our efforts may be too little and too late. And another key factor in all of this that Diamond refers to are the actions or inactions of, as he says, self-absorbed kings, chiefs, and politicians. And it's hard in this context not to think of the unquestioning commitment of governments around the world over the past three decades to neoliberalism, deregulation, and the free market. It's hard also not to think about the 377-person unit in the London office of AIG, who by dealing in intricate financial contracts known as credit derivatives, contributed significantly to bringing down one of the world's largest insurers. How can we forget the words of a former AIG executive, Joseph Cassano, who in August 2007 said the following, it is hard for us, without being flippant, to even see a scenario within any kind of realm of reason that would see us losing one dollar in any one of these transactions. So, how is our society currently dealing with the GFC, and is the problem beyond our present capabilities to solve? Kevin Rudd in the monthly, called into question, and I quote, the prevailing neoliberal economic orthodoxy of the past 30 years that has underpinned the national and global regulatory frameworks that have so spectacularly failed to prevent the economic mayhem which has now been visited upon us. We've witnessed the trillions of dollars in government packages around the world to stave off the worst effects of the GFC and the almost unthinkable nationalization of key financial institutions. We've also heard about the commitment of the G20 to investigate executive salaries and to regulate financial institutions. And I think that these are generally regarded as moves in the right direction. But one of the questions that I've asked myself as an environmental lawyer is how all of this plays out in the environmental markets such as greenhouse gas emissions trading schemes 
established under the auspices of a neoliberal economic orthodoxy. We need to remember that in the first phase of the European Union emissions trading scheme, 95% of the carbon allowances were traded in the derivatives market. I think that the first glimmer of a direct crossover between the regulation of financial markets and carbon markets appears in the proposed American Clean Energy and Security Act 2009, also known as the Waxman-Markey Bill, which, if enacted, will establish a carbon emissions trading scheme in the US. The bill was released in draft form a few weeks ago. Here, under the carbon market regulation provisions, the President of the United States is vested with the power to designate regulatory responsibility for the derivatives market in carbon allowances. While the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission will be required to regulate the cash market in allowances and offsets. And I think this is clearly an acknowledgement that the risks in the carbon futures market are aligned with regular financial market risks. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's now time to hear from Paul Gilding about the consequences of the great disruption for all of us. Paul is an established global thought leader in sustainability. An activist and social entrepreneur for 35 years, his personal mission is to lead, inspire, and motivate action globally on the transition of society and the economy to sustainability. He pursues this mission around the world with individuals, businesses, NGOs, entrepreneurs, academia, and government. And his speaking and advisory work has taken him to over 30 countries and he's worked with the CEOs of many Australian and global companies. He has served as CEO of a range of existing NGOs and companies, including Greenpeace International, Ecos Corporation, and Easy Being Green. He's also helped to establish new NGOs, one of which is Climate Coolers, which on the 15th of May will be launching a campaign at the University of Sydney to enlist one million Australian women to each abate one tonne of carbon. He's received various awards and recognition for his work, including from the World Economic Forum in Davos. He's on the global core faculty of the Prince of Wales' Business and the Environment Program run by Cambridge University and is chairman of the Australian program. It's my very great pleasure to introduce Paul, not only because he is such a distinguished speaker, but I also regard him as a very good friend. Please welcome Paul to the podium. Thanks, Rosemary. So first of all, you know, why am I talking to you? Why do I like talking to audiences like this and why do I spend a lot of my time talking to people like yourselves, even though I can't actually see you tonight? Um, it's because I think we're at a time when we need to motivate people to act. Right? We are all people of the planet. We are all um, understand what's going on around us to a significant degree now compared to what we did five years ago, and it's time to do something about it. So I think deepening our understanding of these issues, getting ourselves ready for what's coming, um, and most importantly, getting involved in finding and creating the solutions as we move forward is actually the, 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 um, the task of our time. So I think we're here tonight, yes, to hear information, but we're mostly here tonight, from my point of view, for you to think deeply about what these issues mean for you and what you can do to help us all to move forward. This is no longer a passive 
kind of theory as to what's coming. This is about happening now and how we move forward. So that's what I want you to think about as we move forward. Let me start with some comments about climate change. We're in a really different place than we were a few years ago. Not if you're the editor of the Australian newspaper, but most of us have moved on. Um, and the climate science is now largely accepted. Yes, there are many uncertainties around the rate of sea level rise this year, the next year, 20 years, 50 years, etc. But the fundamentals are now really broadly accepted. And I mean, I don't just mean by the majority, I mean by the vast consensus of credible scientists in this area, and more importantly, in many ways, by government and by corporations and by the public, who've now decided that they've had enough of the debate and it's time to move on. Right? So I think, you know, I'm happy to take this in questions as well. As I say to my business audiences, you know, debating the science of climate change has great recreational value, but not much business value. Right? So it's good fun, fascinating intellectually, interesting. I love the scientists debating it. I love the uncertainty. The scepticism of science is a very healthy thing for our society. And for scientists, it's completely irrelevant to us as human beings. We have made the decision to move on, and it's time to move on. Now, as we move through this process, though, as to what we do about it and what the changes mean, we do have to think about what the current science is saying to us right now, not about forecasts going forward, but measurements to date. And that's where I think we, we need to get our heads around the fact that if you look at the science carefully, what you see is that everything we forecast 20 years ago, you know, with a band of uncertainty, low side, high side, everything we measure pretty much without exception, North Pole, you know, the Arctic sea ice, the rate of CO2 increase, the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere, the amount of emissions, temperature, glacier melting, everything we measure is at the upper end of that level of the range of uncertainty, right? So everything is worse than we're expecting it to be, and that's not surprising, because science, by its nature, is conservative. Right? It doesn't, you know. For example, the IPCC report a few years ago couldn't work out what the contribution would be of the Greenland ice sheet and the West Antarctic ice sheet melting, so they left it out of the equation, right? Not because they're silly, because they didn't know what to do. Therefore, they left it out. Now, that's not a necessarily bad science, but it's very bad policy because what we do there is we ignore one of the major contributors because of uncertainty. So that's, that's science, not to be confused with policy and how we respond. So we should assume that, given everything we've heard to date has been too conservative, that going forward will be likewise. Therefore, as a risk management question, we should be thinking about the current science saying it's worse than planned, meaning that the future might be worse than expected. Therefore, the urgency we should already feel is, as a result, much more urgent than it was previously. So what that looks like, to give you something tangible to hold on to, is that you know, we thought maybe 0.3 to 0.5 metres by 2100 was the average sea level rise forecast um, a few years ago. It's now gone from 0.3 to 0.5 to 0.8 to 2 or more. Right? And or more being that scientific, we don't know, so therefore it could be more, we should say that in case. Right? So 0.8 to 2 metres by 2100 is, a, technically speaking, a shitload of sea level rise. Right, this is a lot of ocean increase, remembering especially that storm surge in a storm goes in, obviously, according to geology, around 50 times the level of sea level rise. So a metre of sea level rise takes a storm surge 50 metres more inland. Right, so the impacts of this are very, very severe and very, very significant, and actually not the most important issue in climate change, but the one we understand the most, because it makes the good graphics in Al Gore's movies. We can think about sea level rise in a very tangible way, but actual fact the loss of water supplies from the monsoon failing in India is much more significant for society. Right? And there are many other similar impacts. So the point is, 
It's happening faster than expected. It has very direct economic impacts. It won't be long before we see banks, for example, saying, well, hang on, if there's a chance that that lending I'm doing to this guy buying some land in the Gold Coast to put up another high-rise there in the danger zone, he, you know, I won't be lending it to him in a time frame that the sea level actually rises, but if the council says he has to build, put lifeboats in the building or uh, put flotation things on the foundations or, more seriously, more strings and standards, or you can't build there anymore, that valuation suddenly goes down dramatically. Therefore, the bank reduces the assumed value, therefore undermines economic growth in that area. We'll come back to economic growth shortly. But that, that issue is a very significant, tangible one, and people are now talking about, so when does the crash occur in sea level rise influenced assets? At what point do we say the airport's worthless because it's going to need to be moved? At what point does a nuclear power station somewhere have to be shut down because the outlet and inlet suddenly are you know, underwater in a different place and the, and the existence of it is threatened. And at what point did that become an asset question is a really important question because they'll, the, the markets, as we've seen, panic. If they don't gently adjust, they suddenly turn into a new space. So that's a very important question which we'll see the results of shortly. <clears throat> so that's really just to say that climate change is a really important issue. We know that. Climate change has enormous economic impacts in the short to medium term. We know that. Um, it's worse than expected. <clears throat> I think most of us know that. Um, and it's going to get very ugly very soon. And I want to say to you tonight, it's not the problem. Right? It's actually just a symptom of the problem. The problem is a much deeper issue that we're facing and an issue which is much more significant to our lives and our future, even than climate change in terms of how we respond to it. So... The problem is a deeper one inside the economic model that we operate the world on. Right? This economic model, which has served us extremely well. Let's be clear about that. This is not bad, what we've done. It's important not to sort of uh, wax lyrically about the evils of capitalism and the capitalist model. You know, if you're some of the 200 million people in China who've been brought out of poverty in recent times, you think this model is extremely good. Right? And it is very good for them at that time. It has been very good for us. It's led to some great advances. Um, it's led to some extraordinary growth in material um, satisfaction, improvement in standard of living in many countries around the world. It's also improved um, length of life and quality of life and medical care and a whole range of things which are really good for society and it's taken us to a new level. And if we keep on doing it, we are stuffed. Right? So it's important to differentiate the past from the future. We do have to change, but let's not get too dismissive of why we got to here. Just be very careful we don't assume from the history of that that we have to move forward in the same model, because if we do, we're in, we're in serious trouble. So what the problem is that we're, we're operating a system, right? And the system, in, in physical terms, has limits, right? Roseman referred to the limits to growth work in 1972 by my good friend um, Jorgen Randers and other people at the time. Extremely important piece of work, still accurate, by the way, don't believe what you've heard. Go back and read it and look at it and look at the data and you'll see that it's still accurate today. Um, the, the models being done now, measurements being done now so that their models are actually on track. If actually read what they said as opposed to what the media and the critics said about it. Um, the limits to growth are real and obvious. I mean, really. I mean, do we really think you can have three, four, five percent growth exponentially indefinitely before something doesn't go wrong? Of course we can't. We know that. Um, and that's what we're seeing now is we have a physical world. It looks like this. It's round. We have an economy which conceptually is actually about that same size but a bit bigger now. Right? So to describe the problem, let's think about that. We have an economy. 
which is now operating at about 1.2 Earths. In other words, its consumption of, of resources, not, this is not about the fluffy animals and the polar bears that we'd like to go and visit one day. This is about our world, the one in which we live every day. Our economy is dependent upon this ecosystem. This ecosystem um, is, is providing us with food, with clothing, with a whole range of ecosystem services, and all the analysis of that says that we're about 120% of sustainable provision from that system, from that service for our economy. So we're operating about 1.2 at the moment. Now, the problem we have is that we're now painting to grow that a lot more. We have two issues. One is that we're up against, I would argue, and this is really a philosophical view, we're up against system complexity. Economic complexity of the global market is now so great that we can no longer cope with the shocks that are coming. Right? And we've seen that in a very tangible way recently, that certain behaviour in the financial markets is that led to the whole system to get unstable and shaky. Um, but secondly, and I think the, the fundamental driver here, and the one that we cannot deny because it's rooted in physics and biology, is the, the ecological limits in which we face are now up against their limits as well. And so we're now bouncing up against that, that system. So again, to give out some sort of numerical understanding, so let's call that ecosystem services problem where according to the Millennium Ecosystem Assessment, one and a half thousand scientists looking at peer-reviewed science around the world said 16 out of 25 ecosystem services, the things that we use, are being used unsustainably. So that means that we are undermining the source of our food, our agriculture, our water supplies and so on, and we're doing that in a way which is unsustainable. That's where we are now. We have climate change as well, as I've said, a huge problem. Let's just call that very big problem. Right? Technical, technical term, I'm sure you can cope with it. Very big problem, VBP. Right? VBP is a very big problem. We can't sustain it. Plan A. Plan A is to grow the population by a further 50%. Now, for those of you who didn't go past grade two at primary school, um, very big problem, 50%, very big problem times 1.5. Right? So bigger problem, very much bigger problem. We then plan to increase per capita consumption. When I say we plan to, this is not like a lofty idea we think we might do one day. Every corporation, every government, and most individuals are driven by the desire for economic growth. So we are going hell for leather on growing this economy, and the plan is, and you hear this from right-wing commentators all the time with their born-again concern for poverty in the developing world, it's very important that China and India develop, and how can we deny them the right to have hummers, etc. Right? which is very touching from people that are concerned about that poverty now. They didn't used to be, but that's good. Um, so, but whenever we stop growing, whenever we stop having economic growth at pace, you know, if you're the CEO of a company doing that, you get sacked. Right? You're bored, you get thrown out. If you're a government, you get unelected and you replace with someone who's going to drive growth. All of our system depends upon growth. So we're not just planning to grow the economy. We are determined, whatever it takes to grow the economy. We have the so-called global financial crisis, ridiculous idea, as if not growing the economy is a global financial crisis, right? I mean, that's just patently absurd. I mean, a crisis is when a billion people die from starvation, right? A crisis is when you have a conflict between countries over water supplies. Right? A, con a, a crisis is when you have a pandemic killing hundreds of millions of people. That's a crisis, right? Having no economic growth is not a crisis. Right? It's probably a good thing, actually, but it will come back, to, come back to that shortly. So with this growth, we plan to increase, back to the maths, 
per capita consumption by 300%. So very big problem. Times 1.5, now times 3. Now, that requires about six Earths to sustain. Last time I looked, they were very hard to find. They were a long way away, and they're very hard to get to, especially if you've got 9 billion passengers. Right? So what that means is the very basics of our assumptions, the very basics of what we're going to do with the economy and the determined outcome of every major government and Chinese Communist Party, US administration, Barack Obama, everyone is about growth. Right? And we are going to achieve this level of growth, come what may. So what you have is a very big problem, times 1.5 times 3, equals collapse. Right? Without question, it equals collapse. There is absolutely no way you can do that without destroying the ecosystem to such an extent the economy will not function, we will starve, and we will go back to um, what James Lovelock called the revenge of Gaia. Right? So what's going to happen is that is not going to happen. Right? We are not going to do that because we physically can't do that. Not because I don't like it, not because we earnestly believe it's not a good idea, but because physics and biology and chemistry say it cannot happen. There is not enough land, there's not enough water, we can't make enough food, there is no magical New York investment cowboy who's going to suddenly develop a product which overcomes physics and biology. They were designed a long time ago, possibly intelligently, we don't know, but they were certainly designed... <laughs> a long time ago, and they are absolutely set in concrete. They are not going to change the laws of physics with credit default swaps and the like. So, again, some numbers. So $60 billion economy, $60 trillion economy, global world, uh, gross world product now, $60 billion becomes $275 billion, right, within a fairly short period of time of 40 years or so. Right, so just forget it. It ain't going to happen. Now, therefore, the big question is, what is going to happen? And that's where it gets much more interesting. So, first of all, let's just think about the shock that's coming. You know, this is a giant global Ponzi scheme. Right? We are paying out our capital right, as dividends. Right? We are saying to our children, thank you for your investment. Right? We're going to take it now and leave you the poorer. Right? That's, that's what a Ponzi scheme is. It's about taking your capital and paying it out. Right? investors' money being used to give the delusion of growth right? and the delusion of success, and then they collapse. Right? That's what's going to happen to us if we keep on going. So what is going to happen is that we're going to bump up against the limits, back to our 1.2 size economy in a 1.0 size Earth, up against the limits, you bounce off and you come back. Any system does this whether it's bacteria in a, in, a, in, a, in a petri dish, whether it's a rainforest, whether it's a global econ economy, a system up against the edges of its limits goes bang and bounces back and bang and bounces back. Then it only has a number of ways it can go. First of all, it can break down to a simpler system, to a simpler organism, which is James Lovelock's view. We'll end up with a couple of hundred million people in small groups in a much simpler society. Um, it can evolve into a more complex system which can exist in that world or um, it can collapse. Right? Now, obviously, there's only one of those that we'd like to do and today's about what we're going to do about the future. So I think we should think about evolving as part of that process. But all the evidence of history is we don't evolve until we have the crash. All the evidence of history is that we don't um, respond until we have a crisis and we've seen that with the global financial crisis and a whole range of different 
other examples of World War II and appeasement and so on. We respond when the crisis hits, so the very important issue is when the crisis hits. New York Times' Tom Friedman referred to this moment recently as when Mother Nature and Father Greed hit the wall at once. Lovely quote. When Mother Nature and Father Greed hit the wall at once, right? Referring to the Great Disruption, which is what I refer to as being this time when we are forced to change because the system stops working for us and therefore we have no choice but to adapt and to respond. Now, if we're really honest with ourselves, did any of us actually think this could continue on? I mean, we really didn't believe, looking at this, and I've had this conversation with people for five years now around the world, and when I, so tell me how it's going to work. How are we going to evolve faster? No, 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 we're going to, we're going to collapse. It can't be sustained. Right? So if you actually talk rationally to any well-educated person, they say, no, it's not going to work. We can't grow like that. Like, it's obvious. You know? 1.2, 1.5, 3, very big problem. Gets a lot worse, we collapse. And that's the way things work and we'll fall apart and we'll rebuild our civilization some other time. So that's how people think it. They don't actually, no one defends this anymore in a rational way. Right? And none of us actually thought it would happen, that we could con con continue on this way. We just kind of hoped it wouldn't happen on our watch. Right? We hoped it would happen some other time. And we didn't know how to fix it anyway because it was so big and there were so many other issues to deal with. It's, like, it's not like we don't have issues to deal with in our societies every day. It's just too big, so let's just hope it goes away. Well, bad luck. It didn't go away. Um, it's happening now. It's happening on our watch. And therefore, we're the ones who are in charge and therefore need to respond need to respond and, and work out what the response is going to be. Um, so the crisis, you know, I wrote about this in July last year. Remember July last year? That was a long time ago. Food prices were going through the roof. Oil prices were going through the roof. The economy was going gangbusters, right? Bit of a blip, but nothing of anything to worry about. All the forecasts of the IMF and the like for the previous 12 months had said, you know, smooth roads ahead economic growth coming back, you know, fast and, and furious all over the world, great time, right? It was really obvious to me then, and I wrote about this at the time, that we had entered the crash then, right? We entered the crash then because oil prices were going through the roof because of supply issues. Food prices were going through the roof because climate change was crashing the Australian wheat crop and rice crop, and therefore we had food spikes around the world for that and other reasons. We had floods uh, since then in, in, in the US destroying the corn crop. This is climate change. This is what we forecast would happen, that you would get distributed impacts, hard to pinpoint to a specific you know, cause of climate change, but nevertheless would have impacts on the economy. That's what we were seeing. We saw oil prices going up because consumption in China was going ahead of forecast. Right? So that's what happens when you push a system against its limits. Right? It bounces and it has responses. And those responses are resource prices going up, ecological systems breaking down, the biggest ever melting of the North Pole sea ice, Right? We lost an area four times the size of Victoria in one year, and the scientist's response was, well, that wasn't supposed to happen. That wasn't in my model. Right? And they had no explanation. It just happened. Right? Two million square kilometres suddenly disappeared one summer. Right? Already going down regularly, but then suddenly it dropped right? virtually overnight, and we lost an area four times the size of Victoria that used to be ice reflecting sunlight into space, keeping us cooler, is now a dark blue ocean absorbing heat and driving the melting of the Greenland ice cap. So that's the Greenland ice sheet. So that's what's happened all that little, that little time ago, which we've now forgotten about. But that's what happens when a system... So, of course, we will rekindle economic growth. If you spend enough trillions of dollars, eventually the economy will start to grow again, and then we'll hit the limits again, and then we'll bounce off again. 
and then we'll hit the limits again, and then we'll bounce off again. So we're going we're gonna to define, I think, the next few decades by this crisis as we bump up against the limits until we decide to do something differently. And it's only a question of how fast we respond and how fast the crisis comes to see what the, uh, what the response is going to be. So I'll get to the good news shortly, by the way. It's not all bad. Um, this, this is going to be ugly. I mean, there is just no way around the fact that this is going to be ugly. This is not about a forecast if you don't stop driving that Hummer, we're all going to die, right? You didn't stop driving the Hummer, and we're not all going to die, but it's going to be very ugly, right? So we're going to see Pacific Island cease to exist. We're going to see past the Amazon rainforest collapse. We are going to see, I think, the loss of the Great Barrier Reef. We are going to see one to two metres of sea level rise. We're going to lose massive amounts of real estate. We're going to see hundreds of millions of refugees... We are going to see conflicts over, over water and resources. We are going to see a you know, collapse of societies. We're going to see wars over this issue. We're going to see a very ugly period of time. Right? And we are going to have to work out how to deal with that. Now, that's very sad. It's just very sad. Right? We're going to lose 50% of the biodiversity that's taken billions of years to evolve. Right? We're going to wipe it out in a couple of hundred years for the sake of nothing, of any consequence or value. Right, so unbelievably arrogant, terribly despair-inducing, and just very sad. Right? And I think it's really important to recognise that is just very sad. Right? And I have spent quite some years thinking about this and being more than sad, being depressed about it, because it just seems so stupid and so futile and so hopeless, and we seem so stupid. So I have spent years struggling to be optimistic in the face of such lunacy and idiocy that we see around us every day, because... As Rosemary said, this is, you know, Jared Diamond's list. We saw it coming, right? We knew it was coming, right? We had the Enlightenment, we have science, we have rational thought, and we could see it coming. We knew it was coming. It's happening as forecast. And yet we carried on regardless as though, well, that's pretty hard to stop. So we'll just go back to driving because... <clears throat> so that, that, is, that is a real shame, but it's going to happen, right? So we're going to just sit there, as I have done for some years now, feeling depressed about it, right? And say, oh, my God, isn't this terrible, right? And go and drink, um, do whatever it is that you do for fun to distract yourself, buy more cars, go to the hardware shop, go to the shoe shop, whatever your gender does, um, and, and, and recognise that, you know, we can't do anything about it. Well, that's just not based in any facts. There is, not, there is no data to support that view in my view. And that's, this is why. Because human ingenuity is absolutely extraordinary. Right? And when we put our minds to it, we do incredible things. We are extraordinary as a species and we are able to transform situations and problems into solutions in amazingly quick time. Right? But we don't do it until the crisis hits. So I would describe, if I was to summarise a couple of million years of evolution, we're slow but we're not stupid. Right? We're slow, but we're not stupid. We are slow to respond. We deny, we avoid, we, we try and get distracted. But in the end, we're not stupid and we can work out how to fix things. And we are going to fix this one. We're not going to fix it in time to save all those Pacific Islands. We're not going to prevent major conflicts. We're not going to prevent sea level rise from occurring. But we are going to fix it because we're capable of fixing it. And everything in history says that we are capable of fixing it. <clears throat> I think this crisis that's coming... I would think it's here now. We, won't, we don't see it yet, but we will see it. This crisis that's coming is going to trigger the biggest transformation in civilization's history. And I don't mean in Western civilization's history. I mean in the history of humanity as a species on Earth. 
Uh, this is going to be fast and furious and incredibly exciting. It's going to happen soon in an economy very close to you. And you are going to see amazing things happen. And we're going to look back and say, that wasn't so hard. Why didn't we start that earlier? Well, that's another conversation. But we are going to look back and say that really was quite simple. Now, I'll give you as an example, and it's not a good example, but it's the best example we've got. That is the Second World War. Right? Denial, avoidance, the data was clear, very straightforward what was coming. No, it's not, no, it's not, no, it's not. Oh, shit, yes, it is, it's here. Now, what happened then was, just as an example, to give some numbers around it, in the US, right, they went from 1.4% um, of GDP being spent on the military in 1939, 38, 39, um, to 37% by 1945. This is not percentage of government spending, this is percentage of GDP focused on the war effort. Just in the four years after Pearl Harbor, they had a tenfold increase, inflation adjusted in the amount spent on the military, right, on security issues. They transformed the auto industry to producing guns and cars and tanks, right, for the, for the war effort, right, to be an armaments manufacturer in nine months. In nine months, right? So spectacular transformations can occur when we decide to act, right? And so we are absolutely capable of that. The, the challenge we have is we're going to have to do it that fast and then we're going to have to suck CO2 out of the atmosphere to turn it around again, which we're also capable of doing, which I'll come to shortly. But we are going to have to turn around that fast. Now, Just back to a point that Rosemary raised again about collapse. So, yes, there's evidence of collapse in previous civilizations, lots of it, right? And many people in my field believe that we will collapse. Right? They really believe that we are stuffed and there's no sign of us responding fast enough and therefore it's all going to fall apart. So the question really is an important one. Why won't we? Why do I think we won't? And that's very simple because we know it's coming, right? One of the criteria... Jared Diamond talks about, we can see it coming. Right? Another one, we have the capacity to respond. We're going through a phase now where we are certainly denying it and we're avoiding the evidence around us because it's very uncomfortable. I mean, it's not a pleasant bit of news. Right? Because it's not like those bastards over there are causing it. Right? Those bastards in there are causing it. Right? And that's a much more difficult thing to change than getting those over there. I think it's important that we learn to celebrate the unknown of the future. Right? This is going to be an amazingly exciting time and most people want to know how it's going to unfold and how we're going to fix it. And I'm here to tell you today that we don't know how it's going to unfold and I find that amazingly exciting. Right? This is the, the biggest opportunity for creation right, in humanity that we've ever had. And we are going to do extraordinary things, but we don't know what that looks like, but we do know some things about how we're going to get there. The other reason we're not going to collapse is we know how to fix it. Right? There is, let's be clear on this, we can totally fix this issue with all currently invented technologies. We don't need to invent anything new to fix this. Nothing. Now, we are going to invent some new things. We're going to do it faster and cheaper and da 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 da, -da. But we don't need to do any of that. So we know how to fix it. We know how to do zero CO2 energy, for example. Right? We know how to do it actually quite cheaply, relatively speaking. I mean, yes, it's going to be more expensive than coal without a carbon price for now, but I think it's very hard not to accept that when you're given the choice between your power bill going up and destroying civilization. I think it's a reasonable trade-off. <laughs> right? Including if we're in poverty in China, by the way. 
because if you're in poverty in China and your choice is to be rich for 10 years, to be rich is glorious, as, as we were told by the Chinese president some years ago, um, being glorious for 10 years and then having your civilization collapsing is not a good outcome for them either. Right? So this is actually very important. We know how to do this and we know how to do it at a little bit more of a cost and then it'll become cheaper anyway. But the point is, even if it costs twice as much or three times as much, you can't argue that we can't do that. And we know how to do it. I mean, for example, last week they announced another two or 300 megawatt power station in California um, with uh, solar thermal power, right? Baseload solar thermal. So really complicated technology. I had one when I was a kid. It was a magnifying glass that magnifies the sun into a concentrated area, and I used to light bushfires with it. You can't do that anymore because it's illegal apparently, but I used to light bushfires with it. It wasn't very big. It wasn't very good at it. But the, the magnifying glass was amazing. It concentrated the solar power into a, a very small area, and the leaves started burning. Really excellent, fun. Um, so that advanced technology now applied to heating water rather than lighting fires in the, in the backyard of the house at Adelaide, in Panem, is going to be used to heat water and create steam to drive turbines. Again, a very old technology. Now, how do we store it? Really complicated. Salt. Right? Salt is good for you. Salt is the storage mechanism for solar thermal heat. Right? And, and molten salt is what it becomes, and then you get the molten salt, you reheat the water, you drive the turbine at night. Right? Really simple stuff, and it's about 20%, 30% more than competitive technologies which emit carbon. So, the easy stuff. Cars. We're going to have electric cars. Uh, electric cars with battery changing stations. You drive into the service station, the machine comes out, takes your old battery out, puts your new battery in, you go and buy your pie and your coffee. Probably be a tofu burger and a, and a glass of water from a whatever it is. But um, if you're lucky. Um, the, the, the point is, is that we can do that. It's going to take a few minutes and it's not going to cost you any more money. Right? Because electricity is a much more effective, uh, more efficient uh, transmitter of energy than petrol is. <clears throat> so even with coal, right, you save money and save emissions with electric cars. We're not going to do it with coal for reasons that are obvious. Um, so we know all those things. We know how to make our buildings smarter. We know how to do all those things that are going to solve the problem. <clears throat> I don't know how to turn this thing off so it stops them going off. So that's confusing me a bit. Um, I mean, if you have any doubts that, that we can do this, I mean, just think about these things. I mean, just astronomical. I mean, the human brain has trouble because it keeps on going to sleep and I can't see what the time is. But, but the idea that I can have the internet in my pocket like this, in my shirt pocket, right, when 20 years ago that was incomprehensible, right, and we're doing that dot-com thing, right, just for fun at the time, created this. So think about the dot-com boom, think about that, what I call the dot-com boom on steroids with military support. <laughs> right? That's what we're going to have. We're going to have the most amazing array of technologies and incentives and passion driven towards solving this issue. These guys did that because they thought it was really cool. Right? And it was really cool and it was really fun right, to be in that revolution in technology driven out of California and they did amazing things and they really enjoyed the disruption they caused to old companies. That was their entertainment. Right? Disruptive technologies, great. Creative disruption in markets works incredibly well. It's a very powerful way of driving change. And that's our model. But it will be on steroids with military support because they will now be doing that sort of approach, but they'll be saving the world at the same time. Right? So to be rich is to be glorious in California because they've got an 80% CO2 reduction target. 
Right? And they are going to drive amazing things as a result of that if they, if they can outcompete the Chinese, which I think is, is now a bit of a question. <clears throat> I now want to talk a bit about not the technology, but about the heart. Right? We know how to fix the issue technically. Right? We know how to make clean CO2, clean power without CO2. We know how to build clean cars. No, do all that stuff. But that actually isn't going to solve the problem because it's not climate change that's a problem. Climate change is a symptom of a materially based, endlessly growing economy which is going to destroy itself. So we have to actually change the economic model in which we operate. Now, the first thing we've got to do is stop climate change, right? And the market is going to play an incredibly powerful role in that. And I'm still a big supporter, big advocate of markets as part of the solution with the heavy hand of government to make sure they behave themselves. So I'm not a... You know, this whole idea of free markets versus regulation has always been a furphy. Markets only work as a regulation. Markets only work as a contract law. There is no such thing as a free market, right? Markets is a machine that we designed and put the regulations and controls around. And when we're taking them off too much like we have recently, they get out of control, right? Human nature is such that we cannot do that. Therefore, you need strong interventionist um, people, not neoliberals like Kevin Rudd, but genuine social democrats, Right? People who can actually control the economy in a more profound way and recognise that markets are a great mechanism for sorting things out. I don't want Kevin Rudd or Greenpeace or the Chinese government deciding on technologies. Right? I want the government to say we want zero CO2 energy as safely and as cleanly right, and as cheaply as we can get it. That's, what, that's your only criteria, zero CO2 energy. Let the market decide what the right answer is. Governments are no good at picking technologies. Right? Technologies have become completely ideological in this debate, which I think is very destructive. We should have the outcomes for society determined. We want energy, we want it cheaply, and it will be clean. That's not a negotiable point. Right? And then let the market decide how to fix that. And that's the, the thing we can perhaps come back to in questions. But I digress from the issue of the economic model. Not only do we know how to fix this issue technically, we know how to fix it socially. Right? We know, deep in our hearts, and this is the most shocking news for the evening for you, that buying stuff doesn't make you happy. <laughs> Come on. Buying stuff doesn't make you happy. Now, it does for a 24 hours or so. Let's not exaggerate the case too much. Sometimes for a day or two. A new car, maybe a week or two. Or maybe a month. I mean, some new cars. I mean, new cars, it's good fun. Now, but everything depends upon that big... Someone read my Great Disruption piece and wrote back a comment on my blog about it saying, and called it the Great Deception by mistake. And I thought, that's a much better phrase. It is the Great Deception. The Great Deception is that if we buy more stuff, work really hard, get more money, sacrifice more of our home life for the greater good of shareholder value, we'll get rich and we'll be happy. Right? It's complete, utter garbage. Now, it's absolutely true if you're in an impoverished village in Papua New Guinea. Right? It's completely true if you are in Western China eking out a living, right, without education, without food, without shelter, with a low life expectancy. There's no question at all that going from zero to different studies between 30, 50, 80,000 US dollars per capita per year is a big increase in happiness, right? Now, get this. Once you get past that, it goes up like this, right, and then you get richer and richer and it gets slower, slower, slower until you get really, it doesn't go up at all, until you get disgustingly rich and then it goes down again. Right? So the ultimate prize here is to be back in misery. 
Right? If you're really, really good at this model, you will again be unhappy. <laughs> now, what does make us happy, though, is that we can, can be happier in financial terms if I make more than you do. Right? So it is proven in the data that if you make more than the bloke next door, right, or the woman down the street, or the woman at work, whatever, you will be happier than you thought you were before. Now, what a stupid idea for a society. The only way to be happier is to be better off than the person next to you. Well, that's just dumb. So none of this works. No, it doesn't work. It works out of poverty really, really well. It works out of poverty really, really well. And then once you're at about you know, a decent standard of average Australian earnings, you don't get any happier. You get more stuff. You get more distracted. Right? And relatively speaking, you have more than you had yesterday. You feel better. And we all have that. There's no moralising about this. This is human nature. Right? But it fundamentally doesn't work, and we know it doesn't work. Now... It's very important, I think, not to moralise about this, not to get into a space where we, you know, as I do all the time, the evil people who drive Hummers, etc. You can say that in Australia because no one drives a Hummer. But, um, you know, it's not like that. This is not about them, it's about us. Right? I mean, and true confessions, Michelle, my lovely wife, is here tonight for my 40th birthday present. This is really embarrassing, but I love saying it in public because it's sort of cleansing. <laughs> my present was, get this, I could have unlimited time in the big hardware store. <laughs> I always wanted to go to the hardware store and look around there, because you know what blokes are like, you buy hardware and you become a handyman, right? You buy this machine and you can fix things. You can't, but I mean, you buy it and you think you can. It's excellent, right? And you can look at things and say, if only I had that, I could build a house. If I had one of those, I could build a nuclear power station. Right? Complete crap, obviously, but you believe that, and that's what shopping is about. Right, so my 40th birthday present, Michelle said, oh, we'll bring the kids, we'll make it a family event and you can walk up and down the aisles as long as you like. You know, big, big BBC hardware, whatever it's called. Um, Bunnings now. You know, and it's a big Bunnings, right? It's a really big Bunnings. Right? Really big, I love them. They're just gigantic. And she said, oh, well, an hour, an hour will do them completely. You couldn't be more than an hour there. Four hours. <laughs> One, two, three, four hours up and down every aisle. And I didn't get bored at all. So... The point is, you know, my thing's hardware, your thing might be shoes, whatever it is, doesn't really matter. Right? We want distraction by buying stuff. And it's not like we're good and they're bad, we're right, Americans are evil. You know, it's, just, it's not that simple. This is about us. Right? And we have to have some addiction therapy about our consumer society. So in our family, we do things like this. You know, we're certainly far from perfect, but we do things like the kids get for Christmas or for birthdays an experience. Right? So your main birthday present is that you can now pick a family experience, which we're all going to go on and we're all going to enjoy. You know, mine was a hardware shop. That's where it started. Um, and we're all going to come along and it's going to be your day. So one of them goes to the rugby, one of them does this, whatever. That is a very powerful memory for the kids. Now, it doesn't save us any money because they always pick really ridiculously expensive things. But, you know, five tickets to the rugby is a lot of money these days. But the point is that, that that's their thing and they're in control and they get real satisfaction from the experience, from the bonding of the family, from the sense of control and power and influence, which for kids is important. Right? And that's a really powerful thing to do. So that's therapy. That's consumer retail therapy. Right? Therapy against being a consumer. We have a rule that we don't buy anything of a major item without going to the shop and picking it absolutely and deciding what we're buying, then going away for seven days to see if you really want it. We have saved so much money <laughs> right, from stupid stuff that I thought we wanted and Michelle, as usual, was right and we didn't. And after a week, you forget about it or you don't get round to it because it wasn't so important after all. 
No, 24-hour rules on smaller items. These things are practical rules because we are all addicted, right, to this distraction, right? And we have to learn how not to be addicted, and that's actually quite hard work. So that's good news. So we know about that. We've got to stop doing that. And that's obviously not going to cover how to do that tonight, but we've got to think about how do we build our society not to be a consumer society? How do we have a campaign against shopping? Who wouldn't like five more weeks holiday a year in return for 10% less shopping? Five weeks you work every year for that 10% marginal improvement in retailability. Right? So five more weeks with your family, five more weeks having a holiday, five more weeks doing what you do in return for being a little bit more disciplined about your shopping. Right? Enormously significant benefit. Pay off your mortgage, reduce your debt, have a better life for five more weeks. So that doesn't add up. That is the great deception. Right? We have fallen for this hook, line and sinker. Uh, it's not a conspiracy by the bad guys. It's actually our conspiracy. We've bought into it. We've encouraged it. And we've got to stop doing it because that's a very important thing not to do anymore. So we know what's wrong. We also know what's right. We know that, for example, what does make us happy is love, right? relationships, community, and doing something meaningful with your life. Well, they're the things that are, and going to rugby if you're an eight-year-old boy like my son, um, that's meaningful for him, is really important to recognise that we are know and we have proven, this is not a philosophy, this is actually data measured and proven by lots of people, that what makes us happy is doing meaningful things, having connections and relationships. So we need a movement right, that says, let's have a cup of tea in our street on Wednesday mornings right, for whoever's around. Let's go and make sure everyone in our street talks to each other sometimes, just to see who's around, so I feel as though I'm part of a community. Let's make sure all the blokes around the place are looking after my sons when they're misbehaving, when they're adolescents and doing wild things, is they know who they are, and they will intervene. Right? So you know, the, the numbers about boys going wrong from lack of male role models and the percentage of men in prison who didn't have a father at home is just astronomical, way disproportionately represented. Right? So we can deal with that with community. Right? We can deal with that by actually actively working on building societies which give us a safer place to live and a safer level of protection. So the good news is that all that is that we know how to fix it, we know what the values are, we know how to change, and we're already doing it. There are movements emerging all around the world of people acting, a transition towns movement in the UK and the US, building towns and cities that aren't going to rely on an oil-intensive, CO2-intensive economy. They're looking for solutions. They're building those communities now, and they know what the way forward looks like. So what do we need to do? We need to get ready, right? You need to get ready. You need to think about what that means for you. You need to stop thinking about this as being something out there that we don't worry about until it happens or we can't control because we're powerless. You've got to think about what it means for you in terms of your community. What are you going to do? Right, to shop less? What are you going to do about building up your community to be stronger? What are you going to do about ensuring that meaningful work is part of your life? Right, that meaning comes to you, whether it's volunteering, right, it doesn't have to be through your job, but you've got to have meaning in your life and substance because it'll make you happy. You've got to teach your kids and your community that happiness comes from meaning, and that's an active intervention we need to do to create this new world. The final thing I want to say about that is that I used to run Greenpeace. Um, I 
went there at a ridiculously young age from Australia at 33, became the global head of Greenpeace and thought, OK, this is it. You know, now I'm going to have enormous power and influence. Right? And I'm going to meet the people who run the world. Right? I'm going to meet them face to face in a room. And I didn't. I didn't want to talk to Greenpeace. So that was OK because <laughs> Greenpeace threw me out, so I left after they threw me out. And that's another story. But the, the point is... When they threw me out, I formed a company to do consulting to large corporates around the world. And I worked with the CEOs of DuPont and Ford Motor Company in the US and SC Johnson and lots of big global companies in Australia with ANZ, IOD with Mike Hawker, who's here tonight. Um, you know, really, really smart people who were absolutely, genuinely good people, you know, without exception. I mean, obviously, I was working for the good guys because that's who they wanted me to work with them and that's how it worked. They weren't like necessarily average CEOs, but they weren't that unrepresentative. Now, I didn't meet many people who woke up in the morning and said, what can I destroy today? Right? I met a few, but not many. Right? I know Hugh Morgan. So <laughs> there are people around who are like that, but they're so small in number. Right? Now, the thing that I thought, this is going to be great because these guys really are in charge. Greenpeace wasn't. These guys are. They are going to change the world. They are going to actually do this. And they talked to me about how powerless they were and how little influence they had on the system, and how they were just one little part of the cog in their machine, which was a bigger part of that machine, bigger part of that machine, and they felt powerless. So let me tell you, everybody feels like they can't have an influence. Everybody feels like this is too big for them. Right? So the good news in that is that it's just not true, is that we can all be influential, we can all be powerful. I don't mean that in a philosophical, trust me, it will be lovely in the morning kind of way, but in a practical sense, that the thing we need to do now is to all change the world, right? And the only people who can change the world is us, acting individually. There is nobody in charge. There is nobody in control, right? And the only hope we have is that all of us decide to act, which we will because of the crisis that's coming, and we'll find a different, a different way forward. So and one of my favourite things in this, um, when I'm doing corporate talks is if you're not going to save the world, then who is? I mean, think about that. If you're not going to do it, who is? Well, I tell you, Greenpeace is not going to do it. Right? AIG isn't going to do it. AIG could have, but that's another story. Um, the, you know, there is no one better or smarter than any of us in these positions who are in charge and who can do things. Yes, it's great that Barack Obama's in power. He is doing amazing things. Right? A genuine reformer and doing extraordinary things in this area. But it's not enough. Right? It's not enough unless we all get, we all get involved. And my favourite closing quote is, which I read in an article about a bunch of Harvard students who are inventing a new way forward with transport, was, you know, we are the people we're, we've been waiting for. Right? We are the people we've been waiting for. There is no one else coming. Um, there is nowhere else for them to come from. There is no one better than this. We are the people, and therefore it's time for us to get to work and, on the task of building a new world. Thank you. <laughs> and um, open to questions. I'm comfortable with silence, so I'll make you sit here for half an hour. <laughs> it's good to have some reflection time anyway. Thanks. It was, it was very inspiring and great talk. Um, my question comes from a point you made um, that fundamentally governments and companies operate um, 
on growth, you know, whether it be you are elected because you have you, you vote because you have a, a good job or a shareholder because a company has delivered extra mm -hmm. dividend. So how do we change that idea, which to me is is so embedded in everything that we do? <clears throat> I mean, it is the you know it's the sixty trillion dollar question in terms of the size of the global economy, right? How do we stop growth? <clears throat> how do we change that model? The answer is we're not going to have to because it's going to stop by itself. And this is a really important point. We're not going to decide to stop growing the economy. Right? The economy is going to stop growing all by itself because it's had enough. Right? It's looked at the world and said, it ain't going to work for me anymore. Right? And therefore, the physics and biology say, we're not going to grow this economy any more than it currently is because you can't do that. Right? And so what's going to, I don't mean that in a sense of, of flippantly. I mean back to the physics and biology. We cannot grow the economy in this model this way. So either, I mean, let's, let's think about that, my very big problem times 1.5 and times 3. What can we change? Population, very difficult to change. You can change it, but it takes decades to have an influence. You need to grow the economy, which was looking to be quite difficult, and you need to educate women, right, which just takes time. So we're not going to change economic, we're not going to change population growth significantly in a meaningful time frame. So that's, we can't fix that. We can change per capita income, we can stop growing the economy consciously. That's not going to happen for the reasons you're saying. It's just not, we're not going to decide to do that. Right? Um, we may do that. We're not going to decide to do it. Um, or we can change the very big problem, which is the nature of the economy. So we're now up against this limit, and we're going to have to change very big problem. We're going to have to change the way we produce energy, the why, what technologies we use, how much we shop, how much stuff we own. And if we don't change that, the economy can't grow anymore. Now, the economy's growth is not limited by the size of the money. Now, we can have a $300 trillion um, GWP economy. That's not a problem. What we can't have is the resource consumption that is embedded in that. Right? So there's no reason we can't grow an economy in theory, but we can't grow it unless we change the model in which it's, grow what's it's based, and we're not going to change that in a hurry because we haven't got time to change that in a hurry. Because we're up against, We could have changed it in 1972 when the limits of growth came out, and said, yep, you're right, sorry, okay, we'll change the model. We didn't, right? We could have been 1990, possibly. We sure as hell can't now. It won't change fast enough to stop, us, stop that situation. So rest easy, it'll stop growing all by itself. <laughs> a lot of CEOs will get sacked in the meantime. Governments will be trying out. It's going to be kind of messy, but, but um, that's going to happen. Who's there first? You were. Uh, I was going to ask you, I know that you're virtually indicating some cynicism about organisational change en masse in terms of your uh, position or your own uh, statement about Greenpeace. Um, in terms of political parties, also working within political parties, I assume that you'll feel that there's certain limitations there. So from a political point of view and a strategic point of view, are you advocating that it's much more up to the individual and the lifestyle that we live and adopt? Or are you saying that there are broader uh, political strategies which you'd like to share with us? Yep, sure. No, good. Thank you. First of all, clarifying Greenpeace. I, I'm, I'm extremely proud of Greenpeace. It's the best thing I ever did in my life. I have great passion for the organisation, and they are stuck in their ways as a Ford Motor Company. Right? So it's like it's just the nature of large organisations that they're very hard to change. Right? But it's not a bad organisation. It's just people. Right? And we're all kind of stuck in that place. Um, what I'm saying is that, is that it's not up to the individual let governments off the hook. Right? It's not about communities acting because business won't and we should ignore them. It is it's about people. It's about people in politics. 
It's about people in business. It's about people in NGOs and people in academics and people in lecture halls. It's about people in everywhere you look. I have a completely non-ideological view of the world in terms of organisational form. When I went from Greenpeace to running a company, everyone thought I'd sold out because I was working for my own company. Because it was a company, therefore it was evil. Right? There are as many evil people in Greenpeace as there are in many companies. And there aren't many, by the way, at all. I don't mean that in that way. It's just about people. So it is about people. And it's about culture change happening from people's values and beliefs, not from the top down being organised. So we get the leaders we deserve and we elect. We get the companies and the products that we ask for, right? and we have to ask for different things. So that political movement, though, I do believe the only real direct response in terms of politics is they're going to respond to us. Right? We are not going to respond to them. Right? We are going to demand change and they're going to give it to us. And it won't happen by demanding that a company, which I've spent 15 years trying to do, behave in a way which the customer doesn't want. Right? You have to have that coming from the bottom up, so we have to organise ourselves through movements and social change organisations, not to change politics, right, which we've been trying to do for 30 years unsuccessfully, but to change ourselves. Yeah, I'd like to take you back to the first, your answer to the first question. You're saying that there's a constraint on the size of the economy. So the economy is not going to grow because it's going to hit against mm. barriers. Yes, I understand that. But the environmental message is a little bit... Uh, sorry, and you're saying that we're not going to stop ourselves until we get there. But the environmental message is a bit more subtle. It says if you don't stop yourself and you hit this barrier, you will unleash positive feedback effects that may, in fact, bring the ceiling down on you and actually reduce you to half a planet. Yep. Um, and that's not really captured in your answer. Correct. So I didn't want to depress you. It's like, you know, <laughs> early in the week. So there, there is a very important question. And the issue is that, just in a technical sense, of positive feedbacks, we know what they are. Sea ice melts, blue, blue water absorbs water, or absorbs heat rather than white ice reflecting heat. Therefore, the system feeds upon itself and, and sort of heats up. So I've just spent the last three months working on a paper on this, on how you actually do it, right? So I've actually, this is a hot topic for me. Um, we're going to have to change at a rate and at a scale that currently seems to us completely incomprehensible for the reasons you're saying, right? We're going to have to, you know, in those of you who are familiar with the climate change science, we talk about 450 parts per million as being the, the upper limit we can get to to achieve two degrees of warming, which is the maximum we can cope with. I mean... Just think about the logic of this, right? This is, this is a strategy which gives us a 50-50 chance of not passing two degrees, right? 50-50 chance of not passing two degrees. Two degrees is the point where we think the system takes over and warms itself beyond belief, right? Potentially. We don't know that, but we think there's a danger of that and therefore it's a significant risk. So our solution is to give ourselves a 50-50 chance of success. Imagine Winston Churchill getting up and say, I've got a strategy to defeat Hitler, right? We're going to put everything we've got at it and there's a 50-50 chance that he'll be your government in three years' time, but we think there's a reasonable chance and any more than that would cost too much. Right? And you wouldn't want to sacrifice your you know, window shades or the number of bedrooms in your house for that 50% chance, so we're just going to give them a 50-50 chance. I mean, it's a stupid idea. So we're going to have to go to around 300 or 350 parts per million. Right? We're going to have to suck CO2 out of the atmosphere. Right, we're going to have to cut CO2, I think, emissions right, to zero in about 20 years by 50% in about five years. 
Right? And these numbers to any climate expert are saying, you are really on drugs, Paul. Right? This is like, I'd like some, but this is not going to happen. It's going to happen. It is going to happen because the alternative is collapse of civilization, And therefore, we'll find a way to do it. And that's the only way we'll do it for the reasons you're saying. Okay? It's going to be a war. Thanks, Paul, for a very insightful um, lecture. My question is, uh, we know world populations have been increasing exponentially since um, the early 20th century. This together with the fact that lifespans are increasing um, <clears throat> means that larger demand, there's a larger demand on natural resources. Um, to what extent do you think population growth impacts the global warming um, dynamics and equation? Um, and should we take steps as a world <coughs> sorry, to curtail this growth um, or allow economies of scale to take effect in 50 or 100 years' time? So back to the kind of equation, very big problem, times 50% increase for population, times 300% increase for economic growth. So that in many ways sums it up. Right? If you really work incredibly hard at population um, growth reduction, you might get that 50% increase to be 30% if you had an extraordinarily unbelievable success rate because we're already here making babies. This is not 100 years away, right? And sex is very, very hard to control. Um, and, and birth control is, is easier, right? But it's still very hard to apply in, in a system like that. And so an exceptionally good result would be going from 50% to 30% growth. Per capita income is 300% growth. Right, so in terms of scale, population just doesn't rate compared to economic growth. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't have programs to encourage population controls. I've got five kids now, so I'm happy for them to be applied now. But I'm, I'm breeding environmentalists. That's different. <laughs> right, so I'm allowed to have them. It's okay. I'm doing good. Um, so seriously, population will not have much impact, and it's very hard to fix. Now, we might fix it right, indirectly by famine much more serious pandemics, right? I mean, we may fix it in that way, but that's not something we should plan to do. Thank you. Um, particularly the early part of your talk was a pleasure to hear somebody standing up and speaking the bloody obvious. Um, any, anybody who comes from a family who ran farms that ran stock Knew, knew, always knew, you never doubted that there's a limit to what you can, what you can feed. Um, incidentally, the broadband, the broad acre um, farming is going to die as well. I think you're wildly over-optimistic in, um, in how you see things going. I don't think it will go that way, but that's a side issue. Um, and the thing that you skipped over, you mentioned but skipped over, was the fact that in the, in the turmoil that is undoubtedly coming, there's going to be millions or hundreds of millions dead. That in itself is going to be a great part of solving the problem. Look, I think it's a, really, it's a valid point. And, and the issue there is that I don't know what this future looks like. I think we could lose billions rather than hundreds of millions, by the way. I, th I mean, my view of the future, you don't emphasise that because it ruins the day, but it is, is like we can genuinely lose a billion or two people. It's completely imaginable in terms of famine. That, to me, is, is not going to solve the problem, though, because the, the economic growth and consumption is the issue. Right? That will buy us time. Right? And it's a really interesting idea, because a lot of people believe that that's what's going to happen. 
right? And it's almost like we're planning for that to happen. That's a lot of suffering, right, to go through unnecessarily, right? We don't need to go through it and we can avoid it, but we are going into that world, which I call, you know, the climate war or the one degree war in my case, is that that's what this is about. We're going to be at war on this issue, right? This is going to be the dot-com with military support and it's going to be like that and it could be easily be that ugly, but it may not be. We just don't know. We really don't know that question, that answer. Paul, thank you for an inspiring talk tonight. Uh, I want to be a little practical. I was privileged enough to attend the 2020 summit and um, I saw the coal industry in action and the disproportionate amount of power that, that, that the coal industry wields in this society. You've talked about the causes. Well, I think we all know that uh, coal-fired generation of, of energy is one of the major causes. Do you have any practical suggestions about how we as individuals can take on the coal industry? And do you have any concept of a time frame in which we will be able to reverse the enormous amount of power that they are currently wielding politically in this country? And just to use the example you, you gave us of California, I mean, we should be leading the world given um, our geology and given where we are in terms of solar, etc. cetera, uh, and we're not. I mean, it seems to me we're lagging so far behind countries like Germany and Spain and, and Italy. So I wondered if you'd like to just give us a, a little bit of practical advice about what you think we as individuals can do. Yep. So I think, I think on, thank you, um, this is one of my favourite topics, I wasn't going to cover it, so thank you, is, is, you know, coal, I mean, one of the great things that Greenpeace has done in recent years is to, like a bull terrier, just demonise coal, right? And everyone says they're unrealistic and it's not practical and we've got so much coal and we're going to burn it, blah, 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 blah. rubbish, right? The coal solution is very, very simple and this is the campaign that we need to run, right? We need to say to the world... We've got a lot of coal, right? And you are most welcome to buy it, right, on the same terms as we sell our uranium, right? You can have our uranium for nuclear power stations if you promise not to build bombs, right? Unless you don't promise it, like India, which else will give it to you anyway. That's another story. But the point is that we have to have some criteria against selling our coal to people only if it's going to be used not to kill us, right? Which is what it's being used for now, to kill us and to kill our barrier reef and to kill our society. So we should only be selling coal to people who don't use it that way, which, of course, means, I think, within a decade, we should say, this is, this is Guy Pearce's argument, by the way, which I think is well put in his piece in, in the quarterly essay, uh, is give them 10 years, because it is a big industry and it takes a while to transition. 10 years, as of this date, you cannot export coal to any country that's using it unless it's going into a coal plant with carbon capture and storage, which, of course, there won't be any. Right? But if they believe it, if they genuinely believe it, they are most welcome and they can have our coal. If they don't believe that, then we're not, not going to sell the coal anymore. Because it's like pig iron bob. Right? Let's give the Japanese steel to make bombs to kill us. This is just stupid. I mean, it's really stupid. And, and unless we have, unless we call the big, see, it's like this, this sort of, the big Goebbels thing, right? It's the big lie of coal. It's actually not an important part of our economy. It doesn't create many jobs. More people work in McDonald's than work in the coal mining industry. And get out of that. And McDonald's does a lot less damage than the coal industry, relatively speaking. Um, so I think, I think the, that really important is to, is to call the crap on the issue and be really clear of what needs to happen with a practical solution and say, sorry about the jobs. 
really sorry about the jobs. We're going to have to work on that and find different solutions for it. But we can't have those jobs anymore. And fortunately, there aren't many of them, which is not very consoling if you're one of them, by the way, in a real sense. So you've got to think about that carefully. But then we've got to build the green energy future instead. And there are lots of jobs in that area. Yeah. Okay, last question. Um, you said that we need to return to kind of an age of meaning in which we kind of appreciate relationships and philosophers have referred to it as a, an age of authenticity. But how do we, how, do, how does that kind of philosophy or, you know, how does that become ingrained culturally? Uh, does that become ingrained through an ideology or does it, do we use the techniques of, of marketing, that psychological manipulation? Do, do we use those, those techniques that have been used to market to people, to consume, to adopt this philosophy? Yes. <laughs> I'll, say, I'll, I'll be quick because I want to take one more question quickly. But yes, because, because we have to not be moralising, you are evil, you shoppers, right? We want you to be happy. We want you all to be happy. And buying shit doesn't make you happy. Right? Do this instead and you'll be happier. And let's explain to you why it'll make you happier. So it does require... I wouldn't call it manipulation because we're doing it, not the bad guys, so it's very different. It is about marketing, right, the idea of happiness is a good thing to have, right, and more work and more time away from your friends and family and more stuff isn't going to work for you. This is going to work for you. So, yes, we are going to have to engage those skill sets to do that. Um, Paul, two-part question around the issue of justice. Um, the first part, you said that you made a comment about you think we've got all the technology here today. And it reminded me of listening to a talk recently on a public affairs network from ANU, a professor of chemistry, talking about the issue of energy requirements of the global population and how the majority of the world doesn't actually have grid connections. So even if we did all the renewable stuff and everything else, we couldn't get energy to them. And so he was focusing on the need to be able to split water, artificial photosynthesis, as a key technology to be able to meet the, the energy demand you know, for growing population and so forth. So I would question the role of new technology, and I think that's important for, for justice. And I also wonder then about your comments about how things are going to evolve. Today we already have a lot of injustice who think of the tribal heritage of humanity and we're now starting to think of ourselves as, a, as a, um, the tribe of the earth, but I do wonder how it's going to evolve. And as you say, the, the disruption, are we going to come out of this with a lot more inequity or equity? I mean, in the worst case, as you said, if billions die... Will there be a few other billion that are still stuck in extreme poverty or will you figure out a way of actually coming out of this for a bit more equity in place? So I think first, first part, we're going to have lots more technology, lots of excellent technology, amazing stuff to make it spread around better. We, we, don't, we don't need it is my point. We can deal with those issues with today's technology in developing countries, off-grid systems. We have all that sorted out. We could do it today. We've got to pay more for it. We can do it today. It will get cheaper, so it's okay. We, we can make it better and we'll, and we'll do that. The... Um, the I think, I think we are going to uh, evolve as a species, right? And I think we are going to evolve and we're going to address, we're going to address poverty, right? Because if we don't address poverty, we can't fix this problem, right? So we're not going to fix poverty because we've decided that it's a nice thing to do. We're going to fix poverty because if the Chinese and the Indians don't come out of poverty, they're going to kill us all via climate change. And so we're going to have to find a solution that engages them and we're going to have to give up wealth, which doesn't work for us anyway, to them for that until we work out a better, more sustainable global economic model. So we're going to have to do that, we'll, and we'll do it, I believe. Now, notwithstanding the point about I'm too optimistic, I've tried being pessimistic. It's a crap place to live. Um, so, you know, there is, there is another, another quote I heard recently was, was pessimists are often right, 
right? but only Optimus changed the world. Which is a really important point. Right? Things do go wrong, but you know, Barack Obama, I mean, optimism and hope is what engages people. So it's very effective as a strategy. It's also the only thing that actually has ever worked in history to drive change. So I actually believe it is going to get incredibly ugly. We are going to see the worst of humanity come up. We are going to see the conflicts we talked about before. We're going to see conflict between and within nations and greed and then the barriers go up. It's always going to happen, right? And lots of people are going to die in the process. But in the end, we are going to recognise because of that we are going to fix it and we are going to fix poverty as a result because it's a cancer on our soul. It's like the great apology in Australia. We cannot have a society where some people buy personal jets and some people can't eat. Right? That is just not okay. And we know it's not okay, which is why we don't want to talk about it. Right? So we're going to fix that because we know how to fix that. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Paul, for a very inspiring speech. I can see you exhausted. You deserve to sit down. Um, well, what you've given us is science and technology, economics, maths, where you definitely lost me. But we've also been through a range of emotions. You've made us feel um, despairing, I think. But at the same time, you've inspired us. And I guess you've really given us a sense of true values, what it really does mean to be happy. And I think you even threw in a little bit of love there. So what more can we ask for on a night like tonight? Thank you again very much on behalf of the Institute for Sustainable Solutions. Thank you. Thank you.